I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is Greg Melville. He's the author of Over My Dead Body, Unearthing the Hidden History of America's Cemeteries. It's a fascinating look at the stories the dead can tell us, both in the histories that are found within cemeteries, but also in how we treat the dead. I came away from this book with a deeper appreciation of the heritage that lies beneath our feet, and I'm so pleased to be able to welcome Greg to the show. Greg, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you. So I would love to know more about how this book got started. What was your inspiration and maybe your goal in writing it? Sure. So during the summer before my senior year in college, I got a job working for my town uh, outside of Boston, uh, a small town called Bedford, Massachusetts, where I was working for the Department of Public Works. And my main responsibility was to mow the grass at a local cemetery and also occasionally help with digging graves. And it really changed my perspective on burial grounds. I had been familiar with this small town burial ground for for a long time, uh, but really I didn't understand what kind of capsules of history they were, how they capture the economics and culture and art and families and really every living and working element of the town just encapsulated into the cemetery in so many creative and interesting ways. And so it, it kind of sparked an interest for me in, in cemeteries. But really what kind of inspired the book was uh, as I left college, I, I became a journalist uh, professionally, and I never really wrote much about cemeteries really at all. Uh, I wrote for outdoor and travel magazines and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, but there was an article in the New York Times, I think it was in 2014, that was talking about the uh, how urban cemeteries are running out of space. And it basically raised the specter of this idea that that perhaps we may, uh, cemeteries are dying in some regards. Uh, cemeteries that where people haven't been buried for many generations, where there isn't this public interest in keeping it alive, where, where uh, there isn't necessarily anyone who are, are going to some of these burial grounds. And, and it got me thinking about what would be lost. And it really inspired me to write this book on the history in some regards of American cemeteries, where they came from, how they've evolved, and perhaps where they're going. You, you start out in the book talking, I think, about just kind of an overview of the history of burial in general. How long have humans been burying their dead, I guess in intentional ways is probably the big defining factor here, right? Right. And, and you know, it's, it's still kind of a mystery that goes back uh, really, <laughs> you know, thousands of years. And so, uh, you know, the first uh, sites that we have found, you know, go back to the, the, the Jezreel Valley of Israel. And, and that, that is, as far back as maybe 100,000 years, this intentional uh, memorialization of the dead. Uh, but we don't know for sure. We didn't always use the word cemetery when we talked about these places where we bury our dead. What was the first use of that term and why, what is significant about the shift to that word? 
Sure. Well, the, the word has been around uh, for a long time, but the, the popularization of it really came about in the mid 1800s. Basically, before that, cemeteries were called graveyards, uh, particularly in the United States. Uh, and really, uh, cemeteries changed, graveyards changed, burial grounds in the United States changed at that point when cities were becoming uh, th their burial grounds were filling up and people were getting afraid of miasma, the, the the spread of disease through the air, through dead bodies they were afraid of, through the smell that would uh, permeate uh, the blocks around uh, city cemeteries and uh, because they were so overstuffed. And uh, people were afraid about, rightfully so, contamination of drinking water. And so um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, a cemetery was established that was outside of the city limits of Boston, just on the edge, that wasn't attached to a house of worship or wasn't a uh, family grave plot, which were the two basic normal types of graveyards to that point. And so the, the person who created Joseph Bigelow, he wanted to make it sound fancy and attractive. So he named it cemetery uh, to, to make it seem like a, a sleeping place, if you will, which is how it, it would translate to. And uh, it was part of his sales pitch to get people to no longer be attached to the churchyard and be buried in a, a separate eternal resting place. I thought it was interesting how landscape architecture played a role in those first as we went to these more suburban or rural places for cemeteries. Yes, and really, cemeteries are the birthplace of so many different aspects of American culture. It's really surprising. And one obvious uh, aspect is landscape architecture itself. Cemeteries were the first city parks. This uh, Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, up until that point, there really nature was seen as something to be conquered in America and not something to be preserved. And even though there was in, in Boston, for instance, Boston Common at that point, uh, Boston Common wasn't used as a place where people would go for picnics and that sort of thing. It was it was a military encampment and there were hangings there and there were livestock that, that grazed there. This idea of having a, a green space where people could kind of escape the worries of the hustling and bustling city was new. And that was part of the allure of some of these uh, new cemeteries, um, including Spring Forest uh, in Binghamton uh, as well. And, and so uh, landscape architecture had never really arisen until this point, until the, the cemeteries were created as these beautiful public spaces, these works of art. And then it expanded obviously from there. This idea that, you know, at that point that they were creating these as public spaces, people would socialize in cemeteries. They would visit them not just for a funeral or for remembrance necessarily. Right. Absolutely. So if I if I go back to Cambridge for a second, it became a tourist attraction where royalty would visit from overseas. It would inspire poets like Emily Dickinson to write poetry uh, and uh, the, the long list of people who would come to visit it as a uh, tourist attraction. And then from there, the other rural cemeteries that arose throughout the East uh, became the same way. Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, for instance, overtook uh, Mount Auburn as the second most popular tourist attraction in America behind Niagara Falls. 
because it was such a marvel, uh, these, these sculpted landscapes with beautiful art, these public art museums where people could go and, uh, and be within a city or be on the edge of a city and still escape to nature. I have to say, as someone, I've always loved visiting cemeteries. It's just been a, a personal interest. And I feel a little less weird now that I know <laughs> that a lot of these places, that this was the intention. Um, I want to talk a little bit about a couple of specific chapters in the book. Going back to the Puritans and their first seasons in America, one of the big surprising things for me you know, to learn in that chapter is that the first settlers survived in part by robbing the graves of the Wampanoag, that was the tribe that inhabited that part of the country. Can you talk about that? Sure. So uh, in a lot of different cultures around the world, uh, people, uh, cultures bury different supplies uh, with the dead in order to help them on their journey. And the Wampanoag uh, buried stores of corn with their dead. Uh, and uh, when the pilgrims came, uh, First, uh, when they came to North America, they first stopped on Cape Cod uh, to try and scout out a good place to to settle before they moved across Cape Cod Bay over to Plymouth. And while they were scouting out uh, land, they, they came across some indigenous people's graves and they dug up these graves and found corn. Uh, they were looking for treasure. Uh, they found food instead, uh, along with uh, the remains of human beings. Uh, and so they they raided these uh, they graves, and it's actually what sustained them through their first winter uh, were the storms stores of corn that they promised someday they would uh, replenish, but then never did. And it really kind of, I guess what I say in the book is that this is the beginning of the long and ongoing and and never ending history of uh, desecration of native graves uh, in, in North America. You know, it's surprising to hear that because of course this is a piece of history we're never taught in school. Um, was that something, how did, you, how did you learn that? How did you stumble across that? Well, being, being from Massachusetts uh, and, and as a school kid making the, the trip out to, to Plymouth Rock, uh, obviously uh, I'm a very, very avid follower of of Massachusetts history and, and, and everything. And it's not, it's not unwritten in, in modern histories of, 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 of the pilgrims when they came across. So uh, it was, it was something that I kind of knew obliquely about, especially because I lived on, on Cape Cod. Uh, there's a beach out there called first landing beach uh, named after or first encounter. I'm sorry, first encounter beach, which was uh, the beach where, uh, the pilgrims first encountered the Wampanoag people uh, before moving off to Plymouth. And uh, so so some of that was part of the lore, but I really didn't know fact from 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 legend until I started doing research on it. You also write about enslaved people and, and those burial practices in particular, the links that slave owners went to hide the burial practices of those that they enslaved. Can you tell us more about that part of your research and your writing? Sure. So between uh, 1619 and emancipation, um, six million people, it's estimated, uh, died while enslaved uh, in you know what is now the United States. 
And we only know of a small fraction of where the bodies were buried. Uh, and this is largely due to intentional uh, neglect or erasure. And it, this isn't just a North or a South thing. Uh, obviously, New York City was for uh, at the turn of the 19th century was the second largest had the second largest enslaved population of any city in the in the country. But um, I, I one chapter I focus on Monticello Estate specifically because it's it's symbolic of a larger uh, phenomenon, right? So basically, you have a Thomas Jefferson who is. Uh, created this family cemetery plot and was very meticulous about exactly where he put it, very meticulous about the design of his own uh, gravestone because he knew that people would see it for centuries and they would come to visit it specifically because it was his grave site. Uh, and he, he specifically wrote his epitaph as well. So he knew the symbolism of his grave. And uh, George Washington did much the same at his plantation, Mount Vernon. And, but yet Jefferson was this meticulous planner, this meticulous record keeper. And he never kept record on where the bodies of enslaved people were buried on his estate. And it seems, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine that that somehow slipped his mind um, because he knew of the importance of it and because of the way that the, the minutia of the records that he kept. And the same goes for so many uh, land holders uh, throughout at plantations throughout uh, the South, where there isn't this record of where enslaved people's burial grounds are. So on uh, Monticello, it wasn't discovered until the 21st century. Same thing with, uh, with Mount Vernon. And it gets to this consciousness right this 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 knowledge that this this moral awareness of not wanting people to see generations forward where the bodies were buried or have this physical evidence this literal physical evidence of the enslaved people who were um, captive on uh, Jefferson's property or even uh, Washington's property and it wasn't just not keeping records it was literally, you know, when an enslaved person had died and their family, uh, people in that community were burying them, they were forbidden from certain things that, of course, yes. other, you know, free people took for granted, I guess. Right. So um, the in enslaved people's burial ground at Monticello is, 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 uh, is incredibly beautiful in that it's, it's just so uh, simple. And, and they've, They've done a they they've done a nice job of 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 creating a space for it uh, that's very contemplative, but uh, when you go there, there are no grave markers besides uh, some field stones that were placed down on the ground because uh, enslaved people weren't allowed to were weren't allowed to be known to be able to read. Uh, also, enslaved people couldn't have uh, uh, funeral services because um, you weren't allowed to have gatherings of more than a couple of people, and usually the services took place at night. So the act of memorialization, the act of burial, had to be very discreet, uh, and um, it, it didn't leave much of a physical uh, lasting legacy. I was also surprised to learn that of the segregation 
between black and white cemeteries and the fact that there is still neglect and segregation today. Um, you write a little bit about some of the neglect in uh, Brewer Hill in, in Annapolis. Can you talk about that? Sure. So Brewer Hill is a, is a, a really, I think, uh, illustrative uh, example. And it's one that I wasn't really aware of when I first moved to uh, Annapolis five years ago, just the, the disparity. So right next door to Brewer Hill, which was which was originally an enslaved people's graveyard. And then after the Civil War, uh, the local black community uh, in Annapolis, uh, members of the local black community bought it. Uh, and then it became a historically, uh, uh, historically important uh, black graveyard in town that, that to this day um, still is still active. But right next door to it is... Um, a national cemetery that was one of the first two national cemeteries that were ever established. And that was during the civil war. And for the longest time uh, until the middle of the 20th century, um, African-Americans were not allowed to be buried in national cemeteries. For the most part, there were some exceptions, uh, one being uh, Arlington, but uh, national cemeteries were largely white only. Uh, so you have these, uh, same gravestones of veterans uh, who fought for our country, died for our country in, in sometimes, and they are identical in a lot of respects to the ones that are in the National Cemetery, but because um, they were African-American, were not allowed to be buried uh, in, the, uh, in the National Cemetery. So the disparity between the two, the upkeep between the two, on the one hand, you have these veterans' graves, uh, at Brewer Hill that because Brewer Hill relies solely on contributions from the community and upkeep from the community is uh, needs some care. And then you have these immaculate gravestones and immaculate uh, grounds right next door where uh, the National Cemetery is, where people put wreaths at Christmas every year and flags at Memorial Day. Yet if, uh, if any of that is going to be done at uh, Brewer Hill, it has to be done by uh, usually members of the family or, um, or, or others who, who specifically are going to Brewer Hill because it's kind of taken off the map uh, for veterans. But it's also, uh, it has a memorial there for um, the, the, the last people who were lynched in, in Maryland and, and the, the immense and powerful history of this small cemetery. And what it still says today, this just by its physical location and the view of the, the gleaming National Cemetery next door is just remarkable. You know, when this book first popped up on my radar, I thought it was going to be, you know, another light history read, some interesting facts about cemeteries, but I didn't expect to be so infuriated by a lot of it. Um, it you really pull no punches in how you write about the ways that we continue to mistreat groups of people, even in death. Did you know from the start that this was the kind of book you wanted to write, or is this something that grew out of your research? I would say it's the second. It grew out of my research. Obviously, I've known a lot about cemeteries. I, I've visited cemeteries. I, I feel an affinity towards them. Like I say in the prologue, you know, this is a love story, but uh, it's not a Hallmark love story. Uh, and therefore, I, I would not be 
it, it, it tells a more honest truth about the object of my affection, which is uh, uh, these immensely important and amazing uh, cultural time capsules. But yeah, it, the more research I did, the more surprising information came out for sure. And part of that is probably my own naivete. Uh, but then a lot of it is that it's just these places are so uh, forgotten by researchers, whether it's environmental researchers or historians or cultural researchers or or um, or, or even into our, our political or public or civil rights discourse. It's it's fascinating to me how it can be so forgotten because ultimately this is where most of us are going to wind up. Right, right. And there are, I think, around 140,000 uh, burial grounds in the United States today, which is 10 times as many uh, cemeteries than than McDonald's. And if any anyone who, who has to drive in a car to commute or even walk a distance to commute to work, odds are they're passing a, a burial ground or two along the way. And it's right under our feet or right under our noses. And we don't even realize these places are there oftentimes. And, and part of it is obviously culturally as well. I, I was researching about the environmental impact of burial grounds and cemeteries and what goes into the ground along with uh, the, the people that we deposit there. And uh, one, one environmental researcher said that there is not a large body of research on burial grounds because of kind of this cultural taboo of um, researching burial grounds that, that they believed kept people away from really, uh, for lack of a better term, digging into them. I want to talk about some of those environmental impacts because, uh, you know, in my own reading, in my own research, you know, it becomes surprising to find that what, had, what became, I guess, the American tradition, the embalming, the, the entombing, uh, has turned out to be have some pretty negative effects on on the actual earth and and the and the ground that we're buried in. Absolutely. And 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 like I said at the start, really this idea of land use is what fascinated me and and, and really kind of sparked my interest in writing this book because ultimately uh, the the story of cemeteries is the story of land use to a large degree, how we use it, why uh, and uh, how we memorialize uh, the dead through the land that we're using and, and, and returning people to earth and everything. And obviously when we're returning people to earth now in the United States with our unique burial customs, and, and, and they really are unique, uh, we, we embalm the dead. We, we have elaborate, well-treated caskets, uh, you know, which involve chemicals and that sort of thing. We have these vault burial vaults uh, that have their own carbon footprint from their creation. Uh, and then we have these magnificent grounds that are watered and fertilized. Uh, and and that, that absolutely has an impact. Uh, and as we're, and, and land itself is a, is finite uh, in the United States, as so many cities know. And, and uh, so the idea of taking more and more and more space for burial grounds, especially as there are more and more burial grounds that are full and fewer and fewer people go to visit them, it, it raises a lot of questions about the use and then also uh, what we're doing to the soil and the aquifer and uh, the carbon footprint of arc traditions of death as well. It probably wouldn't surprise many people to know, though, that, you know, this shift toward this kind of, I guess, funerary practice uh, really happened during after the Civil War. 
Um, and that's when the modern funeral industry sprang up. And it seems to be very connected to money in terms yes. of you have to have all of these things. Even cities making regulations about, you know, uh, you can't bury somebody on your, on your own property anymore in a lot of places. Right. Is, is there any kind of growing pushback against some of that? There is. There is. But unfortunately, the dead are not very good at hiring lobbyists for whatever reason. Um, they also generally don't vote, which makes it difficult, right? Especially when you have an industry that is in the many billions of dollars that does have a lot of, does have a, a vested interest in making sure that um, they are as profitable as possible. Um, and that's not to demean the entire industry because obviously there are many people who are involved in it who uh, look at it as a, as a, uh, as a calling, right. Uh, to, to guide families toward properly memorializing um, their loved ones. But at the same time, it's a, it's a, it's it's an immense business where uh, cabinet where where uh, casket makers are now down to a scant few companies that control two thirds of the market. Uh, where funeral homes are owned by a small number now of of chain corporations, uh, and the pushback is really coming from people because of their wallets on one hand, uh, because the expenses are getting so high, but then also people who are so environmentally minded. So for instance, uh, most recently in California, uh, they passed a piece of legislation that pushes them forward to, closer forward to uh, allowing for human composting. And they're one of five states that allow for that. Um, and then other states are, are opening up legislation for natural burials and other uh, using other methods. Uh, so there is this slowly but surely this kind of counter push uh, to finding more economical, less corporate ways of memorializing loved ones. I know that one of the earlier natural berry grounds is near Ithaca, uh, New York with Green Springs, um, which just seems kind of like a beautiful place to, or right. a beautiful way to wind that up and really takes us back full circle to how we were buried, you know, more than 100 years ago. It absolutely does. And it takes us like you look at before the the, the right as the, mm. the rural cemetery movement was beginning, which we, we talked about earlier. Uh, in Concord, Massachusetts, uh, Henry David Thoreau led an effort to create a cemetery on the edge of the center of town to protect the uh, natural woodlands there from clear cutting for for farmlands. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, Henry David Thoreau helped with it, uh, but it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who kind of spearheaded it. And the, the whole point behind their efforts was to preserve this land. And by putting depositing dead bodies into the land was not seen as an intrusion because there was no embalming. Uh, people at that time were generally buried in, in simple pine boxes. And they looked at it as a, as, as a communal thing, as a, as a bringing humanity back to nature. And um, it, it seems like now in a lot of these uh, natural cemeteries, it's, it's almost identical to, to what um, Emerson and Thoreau were uh, envisioning almost two centuries ago. We're just about out of time, but I'm curious, is there anything you learned about yourself while you were writing this book? <laughs> um, that 
I learned that it takes a lot of bribery to get members of my family to go to all the cemeteries with me uh, <laughs> on vacations. I did find that out. But I, I try and conclude, not to, to give too much away, but I try and conclude with the fact that what's, what's most important in, in our journeys through life is what we live for and who we live for uh, more than what happens to us necessarily afterwards. Well, Greg, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Over My Dead Body, Unearthing the Hidden History of America's Cemeteries is available now. You can find out more at gregmelville.com or follow him on Twitter at Greg Melville. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. Mm-hmm.